We are so glad that you are joining us today for this conclusion of the series of messages called Cancel Culture. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, and a few verses following that. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can open them to Colossians chapter 4. Let me give you a little quiz, okay? Who, who, who do you remember from history class? Who said, as their famous last words, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country? Anybody remember? Anybody? Oh, you people didn't pay attention to history class, did you? Okay. Nathan Hale actually said that, okay? Now, this one won't be as obvious, uh, uh, so maybe not. Here's some last words as well. I want to go. God, please take me. The last words of former President and General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Or this one. Please leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. That actually was said by Conrad Hilton, the founder of the famous Hilton Hotel chain. Now, uh, I don't think he intended those to be his last words, but they just wound up being his last words. Leonardo da Vinci's last words were these. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I guess that Mona Lisa thing is just subpar. I mean, you know, he could have he done a lot better than that, right? Well, whatever famous last words you may have heard before, sometimes they are significant, sometimes they're just trivial, things that People didn't think they were their last words. They just say them. So here's my question for you. If you knew that it was the last time you would speak to your family, if you knew it was the last time you'd speak to your friends, to your classmates, if you knew it was the last time that you would talk to the people in your extended family, what would you talk to them about? What would you say? Surely you would say to them, you would talk to them about, your feelings toward them, your affection toward them. But maybe you would give them another message of what's really important in life and what really they should pursue in life. Well, the book of Colossians is one of four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that were written from a prison cell. They were written from a prison cell in what is called the maritime prison in Rome. And out of that cell, Paul wrote these letters as his last printed, recorded words that we in the church possess. Now, what we know is that from church history is that very soon after Paul wrote these four short letters, Colossians included among them, Paul would be taken outside the city gates of Rome and he would be martyred for the faith. Now, Paul knew that he wanted to communicate something important to the church at Colossae. He had told them that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwell. That's in Colossians chapter 1. So what he's saying to us is this. He's saying, Jesus is God. But then he said that Jesus canceled the debt of sin against us by nailing it to the cross. That's the passage in chapter 2, verse 14, that we took this whole title of the series from. And so he's saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way to have your sins canceled and for you to be forgiven. So here are my last words to you. Here's my last challenge to you, what you should do with that. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. 
Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Here's what Paul was writing to that church and I think in an important way to our church. The most important thing in life is getting the message of the gospel to outsiders, to those who are outside the sphere of God's grace and mercy, to those who are outside the redeemed community of God, which is the church. The most important thing in life, Paul would say, is you've got to communicate the message clearly with wisdom and with the power of the Holy Spirit to those who do not yet know Jesus. So how do you do that? There are three thoughts from this passage that I think really ought, we ought to bring them home. Here's the first. Approach every relationship with prayer. Paul says, okay, I've got just a few short sentences to communicate to you some last words, some final thoughts, a, a, a final challenge for you in your life. And here's the first thing I want you to know. Devote yourself to prayer. You say, well, wait, wait, shouldn't we be doing something? Shouldn't we be going? Shouldn't we be somewhere else? No, Paul says, the first thing you do is this, you devote yourselves to prayer. The word devote, devote means to make a substantial, regular commitment, to be committed to prayer. Paul is saying, I want you to pray, and I want you to pray a lot. I want you to pray alone. I want you to pray in crowds. I want you to pray when you're busy. I want you to pray when you're bored. I want you to pray by yourself. I want you to pray in small groups. I want you to pray in corporate worship settings. Wherever you are, whenever it is, I want you to be a person who prays. Dallas Willard, who has written several great Christian books, says this, the more we pray, the more we think to pray. The more we pray, the more we think to pray. In other words, prayer has a momentum factor. The hardest thing to do in, the, in your spiritual life is to start praying. It, it is overcoming the inertia of not praying that's really painful, that's really hard. And once you begin to pray, all of a sudden prayer gets a little easier and it gets a little easier. It becomes a little bit more normal part of your life. And so you build momentum in your prayer life. I grew up in church, and uh, I remember preachers preaching on 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Now, my, my only model for prayer was church prayer, okay? So I would think, what does that mean? I mean, are we supposed to bow our head and close our eyes all day long? It's going to be hard to drive. I mean, what in the world does it mean to pray without ceasing? Do you become a monk in a monastery and spend your day chanting and pray? Is that what you do? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Let me tell you what I, I now believe that means. I believe that it means that all through your day, you keep an open channel and open access of communication with God. And that it's not that you're in a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, our Heavenly Father, bless all the missionaries in Bathia, Botswana. And that's not what it is. It is that in a moment when you feel you need it, in a moment when you lack wisdom, in a moment when you want to know what to do, you call out to God. Maybe it's just silently. It's that we constantly can communicate with the Father.
you know, just about everybody but me seems to have one of these Bluetooth devices. My wife has the Apple Watch, so she's walking around talking to her wrist all the time, texting her friends without texting. And, but I go to the store the other day, I'm in Lowe's. And, um, and I'm down the aisle, and there's this guy down the aisle, and I'm looking for something, and he's looking for something. And he says, he talks to me, I say, excuse me? And he looks at me like I am crazy. And then he, I turn my head, I'm like, okay. And he says something else. And so I answered him. And finally he goes, He's got a Bluetooth device in his ear, okay? He's not talking to me. He's not talking to the people he's with. He's communicating with somebody else. Well, let me say, maybe tomorrow you're in a meeting and you're like, are we on the right track here? God, show us the, what we ought to do. I mean, you don't have to close your eyes. Just God, show us what we ought to do. You just say it in your heart. You have a constant channel of communication with God. There are these spontaneous prayers. Maybe you're at lunch on Tuesday and there's somebody at the table with you and all of a sudden you realize maybe they don't know Jesus and you say, God, would you give me an opportunity? Would you show me what to say? Would you give me the words? And you just say that in your mind, in your heart and you spontaneously pray. That's part of what it means to be devoted to prayer. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. That's not the only way you pray. Because while you need to pray spontaneously, and you can pray spontaneously, you also need a structured time of prayer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Jesus said, you need a time when you close the door, you get by yourself, and you pray and you seek God in a structured time of prayer. In my life, I've made a couple of decisions. Somewhere along the way, I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I got to Matthew 6, uh, 33, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And so I thought, okay, seek first the kingdom of God. So this is how that convicted me. It's not what you have to do, but for me, I thought, okay, if I'm going to seek God first, then the first thing I do every day ought to be to seek God. So I changed my routine. I used to get out of the bed and I'd go work out and then I'd have my prayer time later, my time with God. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to put God first. I'm going to pray and seek God first. So I started doing that and then I'd go work out. And uh, somewhere along the way, I also developed a second little conviction and that was that I, I would read my Bible and pray, but actually I'd pray and then I'd read my Bible. And so I decided to reverse that. And here's why. I decided I needed to hear from God before he needed to hear from me. So I started reading my Bible first, and then I started praying. But I have a structured time of prayer. I pray for some of you in this room. I pray for our church. I pray for our country. I pray for, if you give me a prayer request that you're sick or, or you have a loved one who's sick, I pray for them. Uh, I pray for some pastor friends of mine that I want to see God do great things in their life and in their churches. And I, I pray, obviously, for myself and for our needs and our family. And I would just encourage you, you need a structured time of prayer. And out of that structured time of prayer, then all of a sudden these spontaneous moments of prayer will begin to grow. Here's what Paul said about those spontaneous moments of prayer. He said, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it. That's what he means by those spontaneous prayers. You're alert that all of a sudden you see something, you hear something, and you say, God, use me right here. God, open the door right here. God, show me what to do right here. And you just call out to him. I believe that as believers, we need both kinds of prayer. Let me tell you why. 
if you don't have a structured time of prayer, you won't grow. If you don't have a structured time of prayer in your life, you will not grow in your faith. But if you don't pray those spontaneous prayers, sometimes you won't know. You won't know what God's leading you to do in the moment. You won't know when it is that you're on to what God has for you. You won't know exactly what to say in the moment. You need the structured and the spontaneous. But devote yourself to prayer. So what we need to do in evangelism is approach every relationship with a sense of prayer. Second, Paul would say, I want you to be aware that God is at work. I want you to be aware that God is at work. There is a link in this passage between prayer and seeing our lost friends, family members, co-workers come to faith in Jesus. And that's what we're about. We are about seeing people who are outside the reach of God's grace being brought inside. We are about seeing those who are outside the covenant of grace being brought into the covenant of grace. We are about seeing those who are outside the redeemed people of God becoming part of the family of God. That's what we're about. And you need to be a part of what we're about. And here's what Paul says. I want you to pray at the same time for us, verse 3, as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. Now, there's something implied in this that I think you need to understand. He says, I want you to pray that God will open up to us a door for the word. Only God can open a heart to hear, receive, and believe the gospel. Only God. You cannot cram Jesus through a closed door. It does not work that way. You cannot argue anyone into faith in Christ. It doesn't work that way. God has to open the door. And then you got to have the wisdom to speak the word through that open door in their heart. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is saying the Father's got to open the door for the gospel to get in and for the gospel to take root and for people to believe. We live in one of the most polarized times, maybe that, that in history. I mean, we, we, are, we are so far apart from one another in our, in our culture. I mean, just in my social media feed, I mean, there is anger about the election and people on both sides of the issue that are my friends on Facebook. There's anger about what we should do about coronavirus. We're not doing enough. We're doing too much. We, we should wear a mask. We shouldn't wear a mask. I mean, it's just, we are polarized and people are angry. And when people get in that kind of position, let me tell you what they do. They close themselves off from opposing points of view. They close themselves off from even considering the point of view of another. That's the times that we live in. So since we live in that kind of time, I don't think that's even debatable. What we've got to do as believers is we've got to pray for God to open doors for us to speak his truth to people. This is where prayer and evangelism intersect. 
it's, it intersects in the point where, okay, I can't open the door. I can't pry open the door. It's not going to work that way. So God, you got to open the door. Back a few years ago, I was serving in another church, and I had a businessman in my, in my church. He had several employees. Some of them were Christians. Many of them were not. And he had a real desire. He's a Christian businessman, just like we have men in this church, women in this church who have businesses. You want your employees to know Jesus. And um, he, he said, Bob, I want you to go to lunch with a couple of my guys, and I just want them to meet you. I just want them to know you're a normal regular guy because they think preachers, you know, are just kind of otherworldly and they're not relatable. And he said, I just want them to meet you. So I said, sure, great. So we arrange for the lunch. We meet uh, at my favorite place on earth, Jason's Deli. And, and we're, we're sitting there having our lunch. And I knew that he didn't, now he did not want me to bulldoze those guys. He didn't want me to bowl them over with the gospel. What he wanted me to do was just have a conversation but I knew him well enough to know that he was thinking, maybe something will come up just in the course of conversation that Bob can speak some truth into these guys' life. Out of the blue, one of the guys on the other side of the table looks across to me and he goes, Bob, you're the expert on this stuff. So what's up with purgatory? I've never understood that. Now I've been praying God open a door. And when I heard that, my first thought was, Wrong door. <laughs> now, the question was kind of asked lightheartedly. And so I knew he did not want my 30-minute dissertation on why I disagree with Catholic theology. That is not what he was looking for. And so I just breathed one of those spontaneous prayers. God, will you please help me know what to say? And here's the essence of what I said. The only purgatory I know anything about is a ski resort in Colorado. But the Bible says there's a very real heaven and a very real hell. And God loves people. And he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And he wants everybody to go to heaven. But what you do with Jesus is what matters. If you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, people who believe that spend eternity in heaven. That's the way I answered the question. He went back to eating his salad. Now, I would love to tell you that we had revival at the salad bar, that he got down on his knees by the, by the cornbread muffins and he prayed to receive Jesus, but that didn't happen. It did not happen. But here's what I was able to do. I was able to plant a gospel seed. I was able to speak some truth about the gospel in 30 seconds. Now, here's what the Bible says about that. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, a guy named Apollos came by and he watered and then God made it grow. God gave the increase. God causes the harvest. Every single one of us has a responsibility to plant good gospel seed. And you can do that. You don't have to do that by giving a 20-minute gospel presentation. You do that in the course of conversation about life. And Paul says, I want you to be aware that God is at work. Let me tell you this. My friend, Paul, who owned that business, 
wanted to see those guys come to faith in Jesus. I wanted to see those guys come to faith in Jesus. But I'm going to tell you something. There's somebody that wanted to see them come to faith in Jesus more than us, and that's God. God loves my lost friends more than I do. And he wants to use me to speak into their lives. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants people to be saved. Lost people matter to God. So they ought to matter to us. He says, just be aware, God's at work. And if you'll pray, you'll be sensitive for that moment in the cafeteria, for that moment at the break at school, for that moment when you're sitting in the library. You'll be sensitive to the moment when God gives you the opportunity. Third, when God does give you the opportunity, take care with my tone and with my words. Take care with my tone and my words. Look back at verse 3. He says, I want you to pray that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. When I talk about this subject, I know that some of you uh, object on the basis of this. Bob, my witness is my life. I try to live for Jesus. I want people to see Jesus in my, in my actions. I want them to see Jesus in my compassion. I, I live for Jesus, and that's my witness. I am thankful for you, and I am thankful that you do that because it gives credibility to the gospel when you do that. You show people, Jesus changed my life. Jesus changed my attitude. That's good, but I, I need you to hear me on this. The gospel of Jesus that changes people's lives cannot be radiated by good works. It must be communicated with words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must be bold enough to speak forth the mystery of Christ. It's got to be spoken. It's got to be said in order for people to hear and then believe. But having said that, Paul says, I want you to speak forth the mystery, but I also want you to do a couple of things with that. First of all, he says, I want you to make it clear. Look down at verse 4. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul did not pray and ask people to pray that he would be clever. He didn't ask people to pray that somehow he would, he would have the, the, the smartest or the most intellectual argument, that he would show himself to be some sort of spiritual genius. He said, what I'm praying for is that the gospel will be clear in what I say. When it comes to you sharing your faith with somebody, what should you be clear about? I'm going to tell you that over the years, I've learned three things I want to be real clear about. There are three things I want to be clear about that people need to know, that they need to hear, that some people are confused on. First of all, I want to be real clear. God loves you. Now, some of you said that's too simple. No, no, you need to understand. If people are far from God, they got big questions about that. 
Some of us who are insiders, who've been insiders for a long time, forget how outsiders feel about the gospel and about God. And here's how they feel sometimes. If God loves me, then why is all this mess happening in my life? They need to hear God loves them. They need to know that. I want to be really clear that God loves them, that the gospel is rooted in the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I want to be clear about the love of God. Second thing I want to be clear about, and this is where there is so much confusion right here in beautiful scenic Wichita Falls, Texas, about what the gospel is. The second thing I want to be clear about is this. No amount of human effort will ever make you right with God. Well, I go to church. Well, I was baptized when I was nine years old. Well, you know, I try to be a good person. No amount of human effort will ever make you right with God. You cannot do enough. You cannot be religious enough in order to be made right with God. And that's why God had to send Jesus, his only begotten son, to die on a cross in our place for our sin. The big theological term for that is substitutionary atonement. You don't have to use that in a witnessing encounter. But that's what it means. You must communicate with clarity that no amount of human effort, religious effort, or moral works will ever bridge the gap between a sinful person and a holy God. Only Jesus can do that. And the third thing that I, I want to communicate is a decision is demanded. A decision is demanded. You've got to decide. And if you decide, you know what, I'm not going to decide, that's still a decision. You said no. A decision is demanded. There comes a place where you've got to step across the line of faith and say, I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins and that he was raised from the dead. Now look, don't get confused. And and. Bring, let me bring this back to, Paul says, that I may make it clear. Do not cloud the gospel, the, the simple gospel, with a lot of other religious stuff. Don't, don't cloud it up with which church you ought to go to, how should you be baptized, when should you be baptized, uh, all these sort of religious questions. Make it clear. God loves them. They can't save themselves. Only Jesus can. And they must make a decision about Christ. That's the clarity that people need when it comes to the gospel. That is the clarity they need. And then Paul says, not only pray that you can make it clear, but pray for wisdom in how you treat people. Look at verse 5. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. Making the most of every opportunity. When God opens that door, you walk through it. But conduct yourself with wisdom and let your speech be seasoned with grace, with grace. He says, just like you season food with salt, season your speech with grace. Always lean back on grace. Move back toward grace. That's what he's saying. In our conversations, we need to make sure that we are walking in wisdom. And I'm going to tell you, one of the worst things that I see in, in the, the Christian sphere of things 
is the obnoxious, self-righteous, spiritually superior kind of person who witnesses. They talk down to people. They don't respect people. The best posture for witnessing, for sharing your faith is to be humble. Be humble. Jesus was humble. We can be too. It's a good character trait to, to communicate. A few years ago, um, I was called by a family in my church. They were distraught. Their nephew had been killed in an accident. Their nephew did not attend our church, and neither did his parents. But I, I wanted to serve them, and so I, I went over to their house. And, you know, you've got a family that is just in deep, agonizing grief. And in that moment, I'm just wanting to be there to comfort them and to tell them that God loves them and that this doesn't, this accident, this horrible thing that happened doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. And I will never forget being in that room. There were a lot of family members gathered around and the mom looks at me and she says these words to me, is my son in heaven? Now, I didn't know her son. Her son didn't go to our church. Um, I didn't know what kind of religious background he might have even had. Um, but as I just breathed one of those prayers, oh God, give me the right thing to say here. One of the other family members who was very religious and very opinionated decided it was his moment to speak up. And he said, well, I'll tell you right now, if he never prayed to receive Jesus, his Lord and Savior, he hadn't repented of his sin, sin, he's not in heaven. That was not helpful. I mean, it was a wet blanket on the whole moment. There was a heaviness that fell across the room. And I looked at her and I said, but here's what I want you to know. If he ever did believe and receive Jesus, he is in heaven. Now in that moment, that's what I had because what I wanted to do was lean toward grace. Unhelpful uncle was leaning toward judgment. I want to lean toward grace. Now, here's what I will tell you. A few weeks later, I went back. Funeral was over. The heaviness of that moment of grief was gone. And I was able to sit down with that mom and I led her to faith in Christ, me and another friend of mine who went with me that day. A few weeks later, her husband, that this young man's father, came to faith in Christ. I don't know where her son is spending eternity, but I know where she is. I know where her husband is. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. The stakes are that high. the stakes are really, really high because it's heaven and it's hell and it's forever. It's forever. And while we talk about politics like it's the most important thing in life, I want you to know something. It's not. Jesus is. We talk about this virus like it's the worst thing that's ever happened. No, it's not. Hell is. 
And I want to challenge you to come back. To come back from the fringes of the social media mob. To come back from this political fever that so many of us have. And to come back to the simple gospel of Jesus as the most important thing in life. It's where we need to be, church. It's where we need to be. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to think of one person. I'm just asking you to think of one person. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to pray. And if you don't have one person, I'm going to ask you to pray for God to give you one person, just one person. And here's what I want you to pray. God, would you open the door? You can't pry it open and you can't shove it through a closed door. Would you open the door for me to tell them what Jesus did to me, what Jesus has done for me? One person. One person. If all of us in this room prayed for an opportunity, what do you think God would do? I think he'd hear it and answer it because he's really more concerned about lost people than we are. I think he'd answer it. So would you join me in that prayer? Father, this is a serious challenge that your word gives us. Lord, grant us the wisdom to see an open door that you set before us. But Lord, before that, we pray that you would open the door. Lord, I'm asking you now for each person in this room and each person who's listening to my voice and at our campuses, that each one of us would have one face in front of us in this moment, that we would see the face of a friend or a family member, that we would see the face of a coworker or a classmate, that their name would be etched in our minds and that you would grant us the compassion to say, God, open the door of opportunity for me to tell them about Jesus. Lord, grant us wisdom in our timing and in our tone. Grant us courage in our words that we might clearly communicate your grace. Father, I pray for others who may have never received this gospel that today might be their day to receive the good news that you love them, that they can't save themselves, that Jesus died on a cross and rose again so that they could be forgiven and have eternal life, and that in this moment they could pray to you and step across that line of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.